Each generation, through its trials and its triumphs, valleys and plateaus, provides a trove of lessons for the generations that follow them. We advance by building on the work of those who have gone before us, and many of them are still among us to put us on game. Gen Activist is an intergenerational podcast presented by Rosa Rebellion, a platform for creative activism by and for women of color. Imagine it as a historical digital archive remastered for contemporary use and permanent preservation. These are our stories told for us, by us. You're listening to Gen Activist. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the pod, everyone. We are so incredibly thrilled to be back for season two of Gen Activist. Thank you so much for listening in. Thank you to everyone who tuned in to season one and for all the amazing feedback and to everyone who has graced the pod. We're very, very excited about the conversations that we will be having in season two. And we cannot be more thrilled to drop this premiere episode. You know, one thing we wanted to do different this season was invite you into conversations just between me, G-Mom, and Virginia. We talked to G-Mom about a lot of stuff. She is always dropping dimes and wisdom. And so maybe we'll be talking politics or fashion or music or TV or love, whatever it is. We just want to put that at the beginning of every episode just so you can get a little bit of the vibe, those couch conversations that we have with G-Mom and soak up the wisdom and be encouraged in the way that we are. So check it out at the beginning of this episode before we roll into the conversation with Evelyn Gogi, who is everyone's favorite internet cousin. And just so you know, you're gonna hear a little bit of baby girl who's been born since we had the last pod. She's in the background talking. Uh, Justice has a lot of stuff to say and we're gonna let her say it. So just enjoy her little coos and all all her little like cute little sounds that she's making um, in the background, listening. Thinking about talking with Evelyn, I don't know like what y'all have been watching, but I definitely needed like some laughs lately. So Abbott Elementary has been great. Um, it's actually not normally my style of preferred comedy, but it is so well done and so relatable. Each character like, um, like really fits and really is funny. And so I just love it. Shirley Ralph is my favorite character because she reminds me of just like a black church mother. So she just feels like home to me. I love it so much. Yeah, it's been really fun to see how Abbott Elementary has like already created its like moments in sort of like the zeitgeist of culture right now. And it reminds me so much of Evelyn's work, right? Which is like taking these real life moments that we can all connect to, relate to, no matter our cultural backgrounds, no matter sort of our own racialized history. You know, Evelyn is an immigrant. Um, My immediate family is native to America, but there's such connection because, and I think Evelyn talks about this in our conversation about the more specific you are, the more accessible the story is. And I think Abbott Kinney does that really well. Like I believe that this is an elementary school in West Philly and that these are new teachers. And there's just such like genius in the comedy that um, I think is just been like, as you said, Megan, just a breath of fresh air in the midst of what seemingly has already felt like a really long year. Like we're not even in the spring yet. And it feels like so much has happened. You know, we're looking at wars across the world. We're still thinking about sort of all the political conflict. 
And it's been really interesting to see how this show um, can just offer, like you said, levity and some brightness. And also it's been really cool to see that many young black faces on television in a way that just is about their life. It's not talking about the hardships of being young and black in America. There's no violence. It's just talking about these young kids and how they're sort of matriculating through school. And so um, I just, I think Quinta Brunson is genius. And I'm really looking forward to like the other work that she comes out with. And we introduced Jean Mom to Abbott Kenny a few weeks ago when she was in town for South by Southwest. And as a retired teacher, professor, educator, um, it was interesting to see her watch the show and kind of see what she thought about giving sort of pre-K um, sort of elementary school some shine and some light um, in prime television. Yeah. Um... I saw it through two different lenses. Uh, one lens, I saw it through as a well-done show. The humor was on point. Uh, and it gave us an opportunity to laugh about some very important things. Um, so from that perspective, I thought it, it, it's really a good show. As an educator for the last 50 years, I saw it through another lens. And whereas... It does highlight teachers and their struggles. God knows as a superintendent and principal, I've had to work with teacher after teacher who, who are having those experiences in school. Uh, and they're funny. And that's, there's a fine line between humor and tragedy uh, because there's a tragedy behind it that our children keep experiencing uh, this kind of miseducation. Um, and I had this conversation, uh, Virginia, with your mother the other day. I have grown weary of a system that continues to throw young, intelligent, bright young teachers who go into it enthusiastically. Uh, and unfortunately, the principal represents the system that they walk into where they crash early. It's just too much. Um, and they walk away. So we lose um, some, if education is that important to us, we need these young teachers that she represents in the show. Uh, and we have to prepare them better and we've got to reform, I guess that's what my life has been about, reform these school structures that make it so hard. And the hidden story behind that is that some of the situations and uh, it highlights some of the tragic elements of children's lives, and we're laughing at it. Um, but I'm not, I, I think it deserves, it's a great point for discussion, the, the movie is, because I'm afraid people, my fear is that people will go away thinking that's the way all Black children are, and that the tragedy is on them. They're the, there's something wrong with them and their families and their communities. Whereas those conditions that they're highlighting in it are really produced by a society that has not cared about their education mm -hmm. and has, has not invested well in it. So it's like satire in a way it, we should laugh. The show is, is incredibly, and there are laughable moments, but there's that fine line between where the humor lies and where 
the truth behind the humor lies. I think that's really important. I think the show, while it's through the lens of education, it represents almost all the broken systems in America. Why? And I think to your point, Grandmommy, um, there's this opportunity for us to recognize that it is the conditions, right, that have been created. And that in the midst of it, these young children, which in this particular school happen to mostly be black and brown, they hold so much cultural capital, right, that they bring to that space, right? And so in spite of these systems of oppression um, and through sort of the um, incredible grit and grace of these broad-eyed, maybe naive teachers, right, there's still some beauty that can come out of it. And I remember in our, in our a conversation with Evelyn, she talked about some really formative moments in her own education experience, uh, particularly as through that lens of immigration and how that's kind of formed her, her armor of humor as a way of kind of navigating these spaces. And Megan, I just know like as friends, we talk a lot about our education experience. And um, I think for you, you and I both connect on what it's like to be, you've had kind of both experiences being right. like one of the only black kids in very white spaces. And then you've also been in spaces where um, you had very similar cultural dynamics and identities to people. And I just wondered, you know, as you think about that connected to now being a mother, a new mother, um, y'all have probably heard justice a little bit throughout um, our conversation, um, how you reflect back on your own experiences in school and how that formed your, your current identity. Yeah, I mean, so my elementary school years, I was at a school where, you know, it was primarily um, white. It was definitely primarily white led. Um, but I was fortunate to be able to be in, I had like two black teachers while I was there, which was amazing given the, the, the area that I was in. Um, but I think about, uh, and then going to high school at, I mean, it's all black and brown. I mean, like I, I can probably count on my hands how many white people we had in our school. Um, and my parents making that intentional choice because they, you know, the, the town that I was in was very racially divided, Beaumont, Texas. And so, you know, on one side was pretty much where the white people were on the black side were um, where everyone else was um, on the other side, sorry, was black and brown people. Um, and, you know, I remember thinking, well, I'm going to go to this school on the other side of town. And my parents really wanted me to go to a school where they felt like my full humanity would be validated, where I would be nurtured. My dad kept talking about like, you don't want to just be a number. You want some people that's going to look out for you like they look out for their own kids. You know, you want some people who are going to see you. Um, and really pour into you. That was really big for him, for me to be able to be like poured into and affirmed. Um, and I'm so, so glad that they made that decision um, because I think that like my high school years um, and being, <laughs> Justice has so much to say, my high school years and being so like poured into and having people just love on me, like it's just a different vibe, right? Like G-Mom talks about this. I want to create a place for everybody to be somebody, for kids to be somebody. And so to like 
have that at school. I mean, to this day, like the person who was my basketball coach in middle school and high school is my friend, you know, like we, Damn, we are like those middle school basketball coaches. Yeah. And she, she later became, she was my homeroom teacher, my basketball coach and later became my principal, but she is my, the homie, right? Like she really took us under her wing and really just loved us as people. Um, my, my high school counselor, the person who was over my club. So I say all that to say, like, when I think about my own kids, I, that's what I want for them with education, right? Like, I think the academic part is important. Um, but honestly, like I can read books, right? Like I can figure it out. You know what I'm saying? But that intangible thing of someone affirming who you are, calling out greatness in you, not letting you um, be mediocre or be lazy or whatever, and talking to you like, you know, they're your auntie. That's just invaluable. You can't put a price on that. Yeah. When a child enters a place called school, it should be an affirming place in which a child has the opportunity to discover uh, who he or she is, to have dreams planted and fulfilled. Um, and that child, when that place is designed to embrace and love you, that child will succeed. Uh, we very often treat children of color as if there's something so different that we, they don't have the same humanity that other children have. And of course, schools are designed saying you don't have that same humanity. So the things that they do sometimes are seen as deficits and off key in schools that were not created for them. Uh, and after a while, a child has no desire to learn. Uh, Kunjufu says our little black boys are ready. They've dropped out of school um, emotionally by the time they hit third grade. So I agree, there are two things about the show. I, I like what the show does to highlight the difference a teacher can make, but it shouldn't be that hard for a teacher to have to do that. That's the right. issue. Teachers sure. make a world of difference mm -hmm. and we eat them up. Nikki Giovanni wrote a, a poem once about our heroes. He said, we eat them up and spit them out. And that's what our systems do. And that's why I still stay in this. I just did a presentation Saturday on that, that our teachers have to be supported because they burn out and you have this constant rotation of teachers and the kind of stability that we need in our schools we don't have because they say, forget it. I've had enough of it. So if it's the presentation I did Saturday was called Reclaiming Our Humanity. We need schools, and that teacher is struggling to, to support and uh, invigorate the humanity of those children. And I, I love that. All the barriers she runs into. And some of my fear is that when we laugh at some of the things that happen to those kids or she encounters, we have to know what's behind it and why it's that way and who suffers as a way of it. But I absolutely applaud the show because one of the ways to get at truth is to laugh about it yeah. and to expose it. But there's a lot of conversation that has to follow it. Chin activist. Yeah, 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 yeah.
Welcome back to Gen Activist. We are so excited to have a special guest in our virtual living room, Evelyn Gogi, who is not only just an amazing comedian, writer, creator, but a friend. And I'm personally and selfishly excited because I think it's been a whole pandemic since I've seen your face. Mm -hmm. So I'm so excited to have this excuse to just gather with you and be in this space. You have been someone on our list of uh, podcast guests since we launched Gen wow. Activist. Mm -hmm. So we're just so honored that you had the time and you created space to be in conversation with us. We think the work that you do is such an important thread to this work that we have um, described as creative activism. We think that's mm -hmm. truly the work that you do. So we would love to just kick off by you telling a little bit more about us. I love what you have uh, deemed your fans and community as internet cousins. And so yes. like, we can come up with our own little <laughs> monochrome <laughs> tagline for our fans. Um, although Megan and I know that it'd just be like fans of G-Mom because we know that's why people are coming Facts. to this show. And Facts. we just sit here and press record. That's cool. I'm, I'm fine with that. Um, so yeah, tell us a little bit about you, your story, um, sort of what served as the inspiration, maybe as a child to be a storyteller, to be a writer and for humor to be such a big part of that. Yeah. So thanks so much for having me on y'all. I am, there aren't many Zooms I'm happy to jump on, but this is one of them. <laughs> we did it, y'all. We did it. <laughs> you made the Zoom list. Um, yeah. So First of all, thanks for considering me a creative activist. I oftentimes have a hard time seeing myself that way because I'm always like, oh, I just like crack jokes on the internet um, and like every once in a while have something thoughtful to say. <laughs> um, but it is important that we kind of um, expand that definition a little wider to include uh a wide variety of people. So I think that's that's really important. So thanks for that. I feel affirmed. Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> if we can do nothing else but affirm you, job well done. <laughs> I think we're also reluctant to use the uh, term activist too. I think we both for the longest were like advocates or right community. Remember, we realize like that is really what we're doing, right? We're trying to disrupt these systems, and so now we use it, and it's still sometimes we're like, eh, but we use it. So yeah, free, be free. And I think you're a great satirist. Your satire you. is outstanding. Thank you so much. Yes, oh, yes. I'm so blessed. <laughs> I know uh, you're able to deliver such a punch with such humor. Uh, and it goes deep when people find themselves laughing at something mm -hmm. that you really want them to understand. Absolutely. And I found that humor has been like the great equalizer. And mm -hmm. also it's been um, kind of like a, a window and it, it's a little more inviting to let someone into your mm -hmm. life, into your experience mm -hmm. through humor. Because mm -hmm. um, I think, I truly think at the end of the day, people want to be compassionate, people want to help, but they don't really know how and they don't know how to, how to treat you. And so if you say, hey, we're just, we're telling jokes over here, it helps them be like, okay, I can enter this space with you. Yeah. And I feel yeah. equipped to be here with you. So. Yeah. I love that. I yeah. It's such an entryway, right? Into the difficult conversations. Mm -hmm. And it's also an entryway 
for folks to ask the questions that they have, but aren't willing to wade into the challenging cultural nuances of asking them. And so you offer it to them in such a framing that I mm -hmm. think allows us, um, you know, we often hear, particularly from our fellow white community members, right? Mm -hmm. This idea of like, I'm too afraid to jump into this conversation. I don't want to be seen as ignorant. And I think right. you allow folks the space and grace right to like grapple with things and fumble with things and humor i think as you said is not only the greatest equalizer but it just um it eases people about the weight sure. of, some of these conversations for sure and i found that um humor is all about observation and i think that is something we all can do no matter you know what senses we might have access to everyone can observe their surroundings in some way and so i think that takes the the expectation off of of needing to know the right words and the right vocabulary and sometimes especially in activist spaces it can get very academic sometimes mm -hmm. and so i think humor and comedy in general um when we're storytellers using comedy, what we're really doing is hyper-focusing and observing the world around us and just translating it to other people. So I think it's kind of also an easy entryway for people. Absolutely. It gives us permission to acknowledge our humanity mm -hmm. and 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 um, it, it, it makes, it allows us to be vulnerable. We open up a little bit then. We open that door, as you said. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, let me, I'm going to laugh at this. And then, lo and behold, wow, I learned something there. So mm -hmm. kudos to you for finding that way. Have, were you um, funny and full of humor when you were growing up? I and how did your parents bear it? <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah, I definitely was. Um, I say that my mom is my first Instagram bae because before Instagram, she was the one taking all the photos of me dressing up in like the, the costumes, which were just my parents' clothes. Um, and I've always been interested in media making because, you know, growing up, I loved watching TV, loved watching movies, listening to the radio. Um, before podcast, it was like you would turn on the radio and there would be like some store, like almost like a novella playing. And so I would listen to those. Um, also, so shout always... out to the 90s kids who listened to like books on tape on those long road trips. Wait, mom, I don't know what happened. What happened with David and Goliath? <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. If yeah. And you the tapes at the book fair, like your parents were rich. Balling. Legit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I've always been interested in the people who made those types of things. Like, oh, how did you how did you turn an idea and find a camera or a microphone or something like that and turn it into something that I could listen to or watch at home? And so from a very young age, there's like there's a photo of me on Christmas morning. The year was 96 and I'm opening my present and it's a Barbie camera and it really worked. It looked like a toy, but it really worked and you could actually put film in it. And I was so hype. And so my parents have always been super supportive of my quest to learn how to make media. And so I've always just, whether it's audio or visual or, you know, even performance, it's like, I've always wanted to express myself in a way that like, um, was about documenting 
it to mm -hmm. begin with. Yeah. yeah. I, um, you know, somehow landed in law school. I say this on every podcast, but, mm -hmm. but you know, I always wanted to make movies and it was because, so I was a kid who grew up in the country. I had to like be creative with finding ways to like entertain myself. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we had TV, sometimes we didn't, but I really liked, um, like Spike Lee movie. Mm -hmm. that was like Crooklyn was like it. Like when I saw Crooklyn, I was like, oh <laughs> my goodness, right? Like I want to do that. Yeah. And I wanted yeah. to tell our stories in a way that, you know, I think like had an impact, but was like entertaining and all these things. So I like totally re relate to that. And then like getting the camera on Chris, I got like a Polaroid. And I was like, oh, heck yeah. Like it was the best Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> like you get the Polaroid and it's the same thing. I think, it, I think, you know, the point that you're making about, you know, your parents really nurturing that and finding ways um, to like be your biggest fans and really like allow you to grow in that is really, really important. And I know sometimes the arts are like, you know, parents can be like, well, what yeah. you gonna do? <laughs> <laughs> like, how are you gonna pay the bills? Cause you can't come be with right? So, but, but I just, I hope that like anyone who's listening to this, that's like a parent really understands how like vital that is. And even if you don't have like, a lot of money right like you can't afford mm -hmm. to buy the like camera or whatever just finding like freeways in your community or whatever to like allow your kid to flourish in that because then they can be like evelyn from the internet so i just wanted to like put a pin in that because i think that's important for parents for sure and when i think about you know evelyn you've kind of alluded to this already right is like your desire to, and I love how you're also being really deliberate in your language, right, to make media, right? Because I think sometimes we think about storytelling like you're a filmmaker or you're a writer. And I think one of the things that's been so disruptive about what you do is that like there is no boundary to your the way you build content, right? We've mm -hmm. seen you on TV, we've seen you on YouTube, we've seen you on podcasts, we've seen mm -hmm. you on Instagram. Um, and I think that is such a, uh, a testament to write just your, your innovation, right? That you're going to tell our stories anywhere stories can be told. Yeah. Um, and when I think back, you know, Megan just spoke to her childhood. For me, stories were such a broker of affirming who I was. Like I grew up in very white spaces, right? In my schools, in my neighborhoods. And I credit both my grandmothers, including Jean Mom, who were so adamant about exposing me to my stories, mm -hmm. right? So I think about at the time, maybe wasn't as exciting as getting a camera because I'd be like, another <laughs> book. Thanks, Jean Mom. <laughs> um, but looking back, I recognize how powerful that was. You know, my favorite book is called Aunt Flossie's Hats and Crowd Cakes Later. Mm -hmm. And it was this book about this aunt who, when her nieces would come over, she would let them play dress up and she had all these boxes and boxes of hats but each hat had a story but it was black history so it told the story of like when chicago burned down it told the story of the underground railroad and you know as a kid you're not absorbing it as like oh wow thank you so much for like equipping me with these stories <laughs> but i look back it was such an affirmation that like i belonged that i had yeah. connection yeah. Mm -hmm. and so i wonder if you had one of those moments because i think one of the through lines in your work right is you telling our stories as black people and i think even more specifically as someone who has direct african roots right you're telling mm -hmm. the, the larger landscape of 
the black diaspora experience, mm-hmm. which I yeah, think has yeah. been so important for yes. black born Americans to have that nuanced insight into your experience growing up as a first generation. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just wonder if like you can think about that one or two moments, whether it was elementary school or college, we can get to that UT experience later. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> about, like, what kind of started to shape the type of stories you wanted to tell? I think, you know, all of us as kids, we have our own ideas about the world and then we learn not everyone is the same. And we have those moments of like, oh, y'all don't do that. Or, oh, we're the only ones. So for me, I think the earliest one I have is, well, there's two. (laughs) Um, It was, I think, preschool or kindergarten and we're celebrating Kwanzaa like in the classroom. And um, my family's Kenyan and the language surrounding Kwanzaa is Swahili. And so even though I don't know Swahili, I recognize it as a Swahili word. And so I'm like, dope. So I go home and I'm like, mom, like what, tell me more about this Kwanzaa thing. (laughs) Because I'm like, oh yeah, I see the photos and I'm like, oh, it's black people, it's us. So I go home and I'm like, mom, tell me more about this Kwanzaa thing. And she's like, Kwanzaa. And she just like translates the word. And I'm like, yeah, but like, what it like, tell me more about the days and like, tell me. And she's like, I don't get what you're, what you're saying. And I'm like, it's a holiday. And she was like, what do you, she didn't know it was a holiday in the United States. Mm -hmm. And so that was the first time I was like, wait, 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 wait. So that's Swahili, correct? And she's like, yeah. And I was like, but you don't know what it is, right? And she's like, no. (laughs) And so it was, it was kind of that that moment where I was like oh okay so then there's different there's different ways to be black and there it means different things to different people and so that was I was like four or five when I first kind of realized that our stories could all be different um and it was that kind of that first feeling of like oh I'm gonna have to teach my parents just as much as they're gonna have to teach me mm-hmm. um and then a, a funnier one is I was at a sleepover, one of few, <laughs> one of few sleepovers. <laughs> and um, with one of my friends from school, I think we were again in kindergarten or first, uh, kindergarten probably, and she's white. And I, you know, my mom was a stay-at-home mom. And so we watched a lot of TV. And so I would watch Little House on the Prairie, everything that was on during the day. And so I think I learned this phrase from Little House on the Prairie because before we go to sleep in our sleeping bags, I say, mm, let's get some shut eye, right? And I think I'm cool saying the phrase. And she turns to me and she says, is that an African saying? <laughs> and I'm like, whoa, what? <laughs> First of all, I'm African? Like, I didn't, I didn't know. I didn't know. And so I was like, huh. I am different in some ways, similar. And so, so those are my two like earliest memories of like who I was compared to other people, for sure. That's very interesting to me um, because one of the questions I wanted to ask you, and I don't think it gets too serious, but I really am interested in it. So we often talk about integration of 
black people with white people mm -hmm. but you're being from africa mm -hmm. and encountering black people in america who got here by very different means mm -hmm. uh, what's been your experience of how we build these relationships among us and you know what are some of the barriers at, uh, obviously you're pointing out and what are some of the benefits mm -hmm. so that's my first question my second question is i'm curious whether you have a specific character you like to portray the most when you're oh. doing your humor oh okay <laughs> you can um, answer either order <laughs> yeah hmm i would say so you mean the like how we interact as uh Black Americans and Black people from other places. Mm -hmm. And and where the where's the nexus? Where are the meeting points? Mm -hmm. uh, where do we find strength in each other? And what are some of the strains or stresses? Yeah, I think, and this is so this applies to so many things, but I think nuance, um, understanding how we're different actually helps us understand how we're similar, mm -hmm. and not striving so much to be exactly the same because I think that's when nuance gets lost it's when um, there are generalizations and so I found that so it's it's been interesting because I was born in the United States and I don't actually have a very strong connection to my extended family um, like a couple cousins here and there but like I can only go as far back as my grandparents I don't know my great-grandparents by name and so it's been interesting to be like well yeah I am I do have this lineage but I don't actually know them whereas I, I encourage people to appreciate not only the location but it's also about the people yes and so I think sometimes people get hung up rightfully so about the physical location and sometimes forget about the people and and how home is people um, in addition to being land and so it is cool that i can go back to my grandfather's house um, but i don't feel like i have a connection with him or anybody beyond him whereas i know a lot of my friends they can go far back and far back on both sides and so i always think that's cool so for me it's just been understanding the nuances how we're similar how we're different and mm -hmm. honoring those things and mm -hmm. it's okay to find similarities and it's also okay to find differences sure. yeah mm -hmm. now to the character do you have a favorite okay. character so um, in general, I love accents. Um, don't ask me to do it on the spot because I, I don't know <laughs> if I can do that. But um, it's so funny because I actually, one of the, the, the most popular accents that I do is actually a Nigerian accent and I'm not Nigerian. And so I actually found myself on a, some random blog somewhere on the internet was like top 10 Nigerians on YouTube. And I was listed and I'm like, oh no, I'm not it's just a, it's just a joke it's just a joke um so i love doing just different african accents nigerian accent uh kenyan accent my mom tries to shade me and say i sound ugandan which i don't um i sound kenyan um so i just like i like being aunties and you know those kind of women family members um yeah. And I also have another character called Hella Corny Dad, and he's just like a TV dad. 
Um, and so, like, I draw a mustache, and I'm just like, you betcha, buddy. <laughs> and, like, and all those different things. Yeah. I love that. I, um, my, we were, before we got on, we were talking about, like, the types of humor that we like. Mm-hmm. And my favorite type of humor is to just take, like, real people in real life and then just yes. funny. Because so often it actually really is funny, but when you're living it, you don't really understand. But like mm-hmm. now, like all the like church jokes, I get <laughs> or like barbecue jokes or whatever. I'm like, you know what? I do have an uncle. <laughs> you know, like wear those white cargo shorts. So yep. it's like um, that's my favorite type of humor. You know, I think this has obviously been a really crazy time. We're in a never-ending mm. panorama yeah and we need it to go away and then at the same time we're existing you know during what was a very short racial reckoning and then a very swift return to debauchery <laughs> um and so you know i but i think humor is healing right humor mm-hmm. has the ability mm-hmm. um to get us through and i really think that is a superpower of black people like we've always been absolutely here to just use humor to like make light of very painful things without necessarily diminishing, you know, their impact or what they mean. So like, just talk to us about how humor is a space of healing for you personally, but also how you use it as, as healing for um, our community. I don't know if you've ever even viewed it like that, but that's certainly what it is when I'm like, I need to laugh some stuff. Let me go watch. Let me go watch that one video. I need a moment, right? Yeah. Humor. I, I found that comedy allows you to call out the absurd mm-hmm. and what's more absurd than hating people. You know what I mean? It's like, there's, it doesn't actually make sense on paper. It's all made up. Um, and so calling out these absurdities, which again is observation, it's noticing hmm, that that seems off or that seems contradictory because that's what a lot of a lot of humans are just contradictory in general and so humor allows you to kind of call that out it allows you to just look at the absurdity of life even if it's your own experiences Mm -hmm. and say like wow we're in a if we're in a simulation like turn it down a notch (laughs) you know what I mean (laughs) and so it allows you to kind of step outside of yourself and talk Mm -hmm. about your life in a way that helps you process it um, by telling yourself those stories. And so I think for Black people, (laughs) for Black people specifically, we're really good at um, noticing characters. We love characters. Um, Noticing patterns, noticing trends, um, noticing the similarities between how we speak, um and like conversation and so a lot of those conversations have absurdity to them and so we're able to kind of highlight that and make it funny um and i just think in general it allows us to not take everything so seriously because if we did all the time it wouldn't it wouldn't be good. All, <laughs> I mean, we all need therapy already, but we would be like institutionalized. For yeah, sure. it um, would be bad. 
Hello, you can find all of my online shenanigans anywhere at Evelyn from the Internets. I love what you said earlier about like comedy allows you to call out the absurd and what's more mm -hmm. absurd than <laughs> people like that is brilliant beyond brilliant. It and, is. Um, somehow I found myself on TV one the other day and <laughs> there's this really good show that they run called uh, Unsung Hollywood. Okay. And similar to like what we're talking about is this elevation of our stories, right? As black mm -hmm. people. So it's all these incredible comedians and uh writers and uh actors right that hollywood as we know it white hollywood right would not right. put them on and i watched like a marathon and so mm -hmm. i ended up watching one about like tim reed who like, mm -hmm. we know as he and tamara's father and sister yeah. sister shout out to the best halloween costume i've ever had going <laughs> as he and tamara with my indian best friend because we're the only melanated people <laughs> in the school um and then but also he was known as this like disc jockey on this like famous show in the 1970s and talked about like his ability and his conviction to to express different um dimensions of blackness right mm -hmm. um and then i was watching one around like the kings of comedy and all of this mm -hmm. and i was just thinking to myself like you know the ways in which we have always been disruptive by being observationalist, but translating that to story so that it can mm -hmm. be documented. Um, and similarly, I was listening to Code Switch and they were talking about the the history of the Karen and how like we think as millennials that Karen <laughs> is new, but Karen's always had a name. And oh, actually yeah. mm -hmm. in Jim Crow days, it was called Miss Annie because everyone would call <laughs> their um if they were domestic workers because you always had to have respect or honor for white people even though they didn't have to return it to you mm -hmm. so you always have to call your employer or any white person miss whatever and so there was this sort of uh, common language that black people use they would call just any white person miss annie Mm -hmm. And I'm like thinking to myself, like I've probably heard references of that from my grandparents at some point, and now we have a name for it, Karen, right? And so to me, it was just like this brilliant observation of like the ways in which we're constantly iterating and like we have this internal language, mm -hmm. but I think you're part of this wave of, Tanhasi Coates always says that he writes for black people with the knowledge and invitation to open the door so white people can hear. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what like is so brilliant about your 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 writing and your humor, mm -hmm. your comedy is that you're talking to us. You're affirming sure. our experiences yeah. with the knowledge, right? That other mm -hmm. people who don't walk in this world as black or melanated are also listening. And I wonder yeah. if you could talk to us about that paradox of not catering your work mm -hmm. to that audience, but knowing that there is this incredible opportunity to invite them into the conversation. Yeah, I think I'm a big fan of doing what comes naturally. And there are some people who are naturally hand holders. <laughs> and I'm not one of those people. It comes a lot more naturally to me to just talk to who I'm talking to. And yeah, if you have a question and I have the energy, I might answer it. Um, but in general, I'm just talking. It's like 
we all have those those moments of like when we're kids and we're maybe there's a function at the house and adults are talking they're not going to explain anything to us but we're kind of eavesdropping we're trying to be you know kind of part of the conversation but you kind of just have to jump in no one's <laughs> going to be like sit on my lap kid and let me tell you no one's going to do that um and so that's kind of how i feel when it comes to um the type of stuff that i make and put on the internet is that i i understand that you know people will people of all backgrounds will listen and it's their job to figure out how they relate um especially in tv and film there's always this big debate and discussion about representation mm-hmm. and i think representation um in a lot of ways is a, your personal job. So like I grew up watching TV uh, with that had people that didn't look like me, but I could still f- see myself in the family dynamic. And so I'm, so basically black people are asked to see themselves in anything, but it's like for other people, that's too much work. And so I'm just mm-hmm. asking people to do that work because I've done mm-hmm. that work my whole mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. And so it's your job to figure out how you can relate to me. Mm-hmm. It's just my job to tell my stories. And so I found even with um, first generation stuff, I might be talking about having immigrant parents from an African country, but I'll see the comments and it's like uh, Mexican American people being like, oh yes, my that's what my abuela sound like too, you know? <laughs> and it's so like we can, they decided how to relate to me. And so I just, I think it's just better that way if I don't take on that responsibility. Yeah, I, I, I like that very much. Uh, and, and what you really are achieving is that human court, what some writers call universality. Mm-hmm. You know, people say that Yeats wrote about Ireland all his life. There's a quote in the intro to an earlier edition of Black Voices where the writer says, um, that we just have to tell the truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if we tell the truth, if we really tell the truth, we will achieve universality. Uh, yeah. If you yeah. try to dress it up or make us blend, it never happens. But if mm-hmm. you just tell the truth, it will strike a chord. Uh, and says people read Yeats all over the world, but he only wrote about Ireland all of his life. But he told the truth. And I think that that's part of what you do. It's through humor, but you're telling truth. And that strikes a chord with people, no matter who they are. Like you say, people Mm -hmm. talking about their um, abuela, or you're talking about a grandparent. Mm -hmm. There's this human experience that we cheat ourselves of when we're afraid Mm -hmm. to tell the truth about who we are. And I so agree. I was going to ask you that question early before you bridged into it, but I'm curious what kinds of responses you get from people when you tell your truth. And then I have a silly question. Who designs the costuming? Because they're great. They go with it so well. But anyway, go ahead. Um, costumes are brought to you by Goodwill and Savers. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely thrifting. Um and buying just ri- ridiculous things. I tried to Marie Kondo and like pare down my clothes and I realized I have two categories, real life and then a costume. Um, so that's where those come from. And then when it comes to the response from people, it's been 
incredible because I'm because I'm so unconcerned <laughs> with mm-hmm. being relatable, it always comes as just a delightful surprise and encounter when I learn who has related to me. Yes. So some people that stick out is us. A lot of the times I'll meet dads or boyfriends and husbands and they're like, sorry, my girlfriend's going to kill me if I don't ask. Are you Evelyn? <laughs> and it's just like, oh, wow, yeah, if your girlfriend has me on in the background, like, you hear me, (laughs) you know, like, (laughs) you are also getting the information, Um, so I met a dad of, like, a 13-year-old girl, I've met so many husbands, Um, my favorite comments are when it's usually women are like, I'm old enough to be your grandma, but I'm like, I love that, (laughs) I love it, Um, And especially the emails, people who take the time to send an email and say, Mm -hmm. I live in Germany, I live in South Africa, um, and I relate so much to what you're saying, even just kind of like what you were saying, telling the truth and how it feels to be here. Um, Because I tell the truth about what it feels like, I'm able to relate to a lot of different people, but definitely dads are (laughs) are my favorite. And then sometimes I'll meet um younger guys like people maybe my brother's age my brother's 26 so 26 and and younger trending into gen z and i remember i was at an event and um i was making a speech and i had to kind of like encourage people and so i just talked about people that i'm personally fans of and one of them was a younger guy and he came up to me afterwards and he was like Mm. i wasn't expecting anyone to see value in what I do because again he does jokes and humor and you know 23 years old you know and so a lot of people might write him off um but I found a lot of value in the content he makes and so he was like I love your videos I love everything you do and it's just interesting to see like oh even the kids even the kids like (laughs) like what I'm doing so yeah You're trying to figure out how to, like, if you've aged out. <laughs> right. I'm like, how do you do it? It's like, what's the deal? What's the deal? Man, it really um, lets me know I have officially aged out. I don't know. Absolutely. Um, I'm on my Instagram explore page, like, who? Who is that? <laughs> Everybody's like little something. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I... um you know, was the little kid, I told you I always want to make movies, but I was in the country. And so, you know, my parents did what they could to give me the exposure. But I often think about those kids that really want to do this, right? Like they really want to do what, what you do. Mm-hmm. But the reality of like, how do I then pay for my life? Um, or even you have, shoot, at this point in the pandemic, you have a bunch of like, adults that are like, yeah, I never want to do this. I'm gonna leave. You know, I'm gonna leave. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna do something else. So I'd love for you to just kind of talk about your journey. I know you have talked about it a lot in a lot of your videos, um, but your journey from moving from like, okay, like this is who I am growing up. This is naturally who I am. Okay, I go to college, I do the college thing, but now how do I make this like my full-time thing and get to do this, um, you know, and feed myself things? Yeah, so for me, I I went to university for uh, journalism, and so I thought I was going to be 
that reporter, you know, making little documentaries, following rappers around, you know, like an arts and culture reporter is what I thought, you know, I was going to be. The Blaze. Was the Blaze? Was the Blaze out when you were in college? I'm very, I'm much. (laughs) I don't think, I don't think so. Oh. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so I went to college for journalism and that was going to be, because I didn't know, like YouTube just started. So it wasn't a thing, <laughs> like in popular culture quite yet. And so journalism was kind of my, in my head, my ticket to seeing more of the world and talking to different types of people. I was like, journalism is the way to go. Um, I didn't want to be on TV, like doing the local news. I was like, no, I'm not, I'm not trying to dress business casual. (laughs) So I decided to do magazine journalism and it was during the recession and towards the end of the recession. And it's like, I went to college almost knowing I wouldn't be able to find a job, but I was like, I don't know what else. College is just what I was supposed to do. Um, so it was during that time when all the newspapers were firing, um, were letting go of the photographers specifically. They were like, these journalists are going to have to learn how to take pictures because we can't afford to have a, a writer and a photographer. So I was still in school and I was like, okay, I'm going to have to teach myself video more formally than like my little Windows movie maker. Mm-hmm. So I taught myself uh, how to edit videos. Um, you know, I got me my little MacBook with my long student loan money, the leftovers. <laughs> so I got my little um, MacBook and I just started teaching myself how to edit video because I was like, the only way I'm going to get a job is if I can write and make a video about the story. Um, and so I graduated. I was briefly a little baby reporter and then that didn't really happen. <laughs> so I turned to social media because that's when being a social media manager was still so new that really anybody could get in and do it. <laughs> and I was like, I have a journalism degree, so I guess I can write a tweet. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I feel like I can write a tweet is what I'm saying. Um, and so I worked in social media for a couple years. And at that same company, um, me and a bunch of other um and me and other coworkers were like, there's no video team here. Do you think we should maybe be the video team here? <laughs> and yeah. so we kind of made our own jobs that way. And so I was, I'm one of the super duper lucky people that got to do what they enjoyed as their full-time job in a corporate structure. Mm-hmm. Um, and while I was doing that, I was doing my YouTube on the side. Mm-hmm. So I, used to always tell people I was doing, I worked a nine to five and then like a 6 p.m. to 2 a.m. because that's when I would make all my videos. And then it just got to a point around 2017 where I was like, I can't actually do both. And so I chose my YouTube channel and extra other internet extracurricular activities <laughs> and so I saved my money during that whole time of working full-time and at the end of 2017 I quit and so that's how I started doing it um, full-time it was a very slow very gradual process from graduating in 2011 to quitting my full-time job in 2017 so shout out to some of the 
amazing women we know that were part of that <laughs> team. I'm sure <laughs> Megan is. Yeah, I saw it. I'm saying she knows who she too. is. Shout out to you. Shout out um, to you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I love that. I think, um, you know, as Megan said, as we start to build, I think one of the things you you said early on is like, thank you for thinking of me as a creative activist. And in some ways, you know, I think that's what you do as well as what we've tried to cultivate at Rose Rebellion is building new language for ourselves mm -hmm. because there is no one clear path that meets not only all of our gifts, but that is part of innovation. That's part of disruption is to do it in a way that doesn't hasn't previously set a precedent. Yeah. And so when we think about creative activism as new language, I also think about the work you do is that you're just building your own lane, right? Mm -hmm. Like, like you said, mm -hmm. YouTube was just coming on the map and that is the space that you were able to curate these stories. And, um, you know, even if we have to remind you day to day that you are a creative activist, that you're doing the work, <laughs> right? Um, I think mm -hmm. it's, it's so important for us to give you, ourselves and each other permission to just do and be differently, right? Yeah. That, that is a part of us um, honoring our ancestors, right? Is, mm -hmm. is doing this work in a way that we haven't done it before. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. And speaking of sort of inspiration and ancestors, I would just love to know, like, who are some of your inspirations? When you think about writers, right? Um, the folks who are the showrunners on TV, but also just creators, you know, and I think back about all of the books that G-Mom gave me, obviously there's Baldwin and there's Maya Angelou, but then who are folks that you consider your peers even today that you're constantly uh, being challenged by and inspired by? One of my biggest inspirations is, this might be a deep cut, but Deborah Wilson, she was, I was always more of a mad TV kid, not an SNL kid. Um, so SNL, I found a little bit, mm, a little corny. Um, <laughs> but growing up, I loved mad TV. And she was on mad TV, a black woman. Um, and I just remember she had locks and she had tattoos. And she was so funny. Like her uh, performances of like Whitney Houston, Oprah Winfrey, like... I remember performing her performances in theater class. And Ooh. so like I would take her like monologues and perform them. So I'm a super big fan of Deborah Wilson. She doesn't get nearly enough flowers. Um, who else? Erica Alexander, um, Maxine Shaw, attorney at law. <laughs> um, and I do, I had to do a quick Google search, but I do remember Deborah Wilson. Yeah. My yes. brother was a big mad TV person, and yes. I'm so glad that you that you're putting her on for this next generation. Absolutely, um, Erica Alexander. Even uh, not just her performance performances back in the day, but even now uh, with her filmmaking and um, distribution kind of uh, programs, uh, I love everything that she's doing. Um, who else? Larry Wilson, um, creator of the Bernie Mac show, co-creator of Insecure. He's just OG, OG comedy. Uh, and I love his podcast, Black on the Air. Um, who else? He also had a show on Comedy Central for a while, right? A late mm -hmm. show? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, who else? 
I mean, so many, so many people, but those are the, those are the ones that come to mind. Um, yeah. You know, I'm looking at the three of you young women and you exemplify uh, the next lap in our uh, journey as a people to claim our spaces, define our spaces. Um, and that's, that's new um, for many of my generation and earlier. One, you took the work you could get uh, and shut up about it because that's all the work you could get. Mm -hmm. Or you um, found one niche and you just devoted. I mean, that's probably my story. Teaching and education became my niche. So it didn't occur to me. In my younger years, Virginia may not know this, um, I was quite a thespian. I was a prodigy actress uh, and went to college thinking that's what I was going to do. And my parents said, yeah, how are you going to pay for your life? Uh, and so I kind of gave it up. But uh, I admire and I think it's important for us to celebrate young women and young men like you who are not um, defining your space in relation to what people give you permission to occupy, but that you are creating your spaces and occupying them. And I think that that it may be quickly, may happen quickly or maybe not, but that's a pivotal uh, moment in American life is that people are, people of color and black people specifically are claiming their space. My daughter, Ramona, just sent me a thing about Target with all these Black men entrepreneurs who have products on Target like air fryers and waffle makers, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, that's like, y'all may have had this space, but we're here now and we're going to define this mm -hmm. space for ourselves. So just having conversations with young women like you is inspiring, but it also gives visions of a new future.
And so I think you young women are giving us visions of what we must become, what we allow ourselves to become and not waiting for permission. Um, so I, I admire that you've created this space. You have the, it takes a lot of courage to do it. Thank you. Uh, but I admire that each of you has, um, and I admire your parents, uh, because many times uh, our people get on this thing, you have to be a science major, we're going to do science, and we kids have to learn their ABCs, right, like this and this and that. But your parents were encouraging you to be who you are, and to, I think, take up what gets too little credit now. Because if we let just science go wild, they would destroy us all. Mm -hmm. uh, absolutely. It's the moral strand. It's the human stories. It's our humanity. Mm -hmm. uh, it's the arts that keep humanizing us and prevent us from destroying ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I don't know where this quote is from. So apologies if it's from a colonizer. <laughs> <laughs> But <laughs> no, it's from John Henry Clark. And he says it's the map that helps us find our places on the map of human geography. Yes. Yeah. And so there's this quote that says, I became a farmer so my son could become a lawyer so his son could become a poet. And mm -hmm. I feel like if we just think about life in a cycle like that, I think we're yes. in the poet generation. Yes. And it's interesting to think about what that will mean for future generations are we yes. going to go back in a way i think we might be going back to the land of like okay yeah. and now i'm yeah. going to become a farmer yeah. again so yes. they can become a lawyer and so yeah. when you think about it in a cyclical way i i really mm -hmm. like that mm -hmm. well you know evelyn one of the things that obviously serves as the crux of of gen activists is the opportunity to hear in this case we always joke because it's so true we get a little bit of a sermon from gene mom every single episode you're just sitting there being like fill me up yeah. fill up this cup <laughs> um and so we're so grateful for her voice and part of the impetus for this podcast is that we we create space for these multi-general conversations and so um, as we close, we'd love to kind of hear what would you tell little Evelyn, right? Little Evelyn, I've seen some pictures, cute little Bray, <laughs> right, in elementary school that you think um, would have inspired you, but also could serve to inspire women of color who are listening to this podcast. Mm. I would tell little Evelyn to, I would tell little Evelyn that it's not silly to play because mm -hmm. we live kind of in a time even now um where productivity is like you got to be a machine you got to be a machine mm -hmm. but comedy really relies on not <laughs> it relies on giving space to breathe and doing that observation we talked about and so i just remind her like hey you love playing now you're going to keep playing never mm. stop playing because that's where everything's going to come from i love that good words I love that. Mm -hmm. some grown children too <laughs> <laughs> yes. don't lose the wonder yes, yes. very uh mm -hmm. active very active and um gregarious 
one year old, I'm like, I'm gonna remember, like, just let him jump off the stuff. You know? like, <laughs> like, let him put Play-Doh on the carpet, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I, appreciate, yes. I appreciate that. I think um, the ability to play, the ability to imagine, the ability to still have wonder in the face of, you know, so much daunting stuff that we could really steal it from us is, is so vital um, to not let this world steal your joy um, as you know, I don't actually know that that's in the Bible, but people say, <laughs> <laughs> so, as the scripture says, no. Okay, you're creating an append. You're creating an appendix. <laughs> you know, people say all kinds of stuff is in there that's not in there. So, I don't know. <laughs> but, but I think that's so vital. And I also have just loved like hanging with y'all, laughing. Yes. Um, and so we really just appreciate you gracing the pod. Um, we of are, course. 